This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Get the feeling we won't completely forget about Monday Night Football this time. But we'll start with the Champions League. Newcastle sometimes brilliant, sometimes a bit tired and so it proved in Dortmund. The latter at least, another defeat leaving them bottom of the group. Meanwhile, a stirring performance at the San Siro as AC Milan got their first goals and first victory in the competition this season beating PSG. Olivier Giroud will still be doing this in 100 years' time. Result of the night comes in Hamburg. Miles from home, at home, Shakhtar Donetsk stun Barcelona and leave that group wide open. 78-year-old Pepe scoring for Porto in the other game. In more expected things, Erling Haaland scores some goals and Celtic get hammered. And then to the Spurs Stadium. Plenty of time for Tottenham 1, Chelsea 4. Fair to say it doesn't tell the whole story, but we'll do the goals, disallowed goals, red cards, VAR, high lines, and his old man yelling at clouds. His words, not mine. Of course, we'll have some more Gary Bertels. Your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendenning, hello. Hiya. Uh, Jonathan Faduba, welcome. Hello, Max. And Nikki Bandini, hi. Hi. Uh, let's start uh, with Group F then, uh, the group of death. Uh, Dortmund beating Newcastle 2-0, AC Milan beating PSG 2-1. James says, did Eddie Howe get his team selection wrong by not starting Stuart Atwell or Andy Madley for this tricky... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> tricky away fixture. Let's save that stuff for part three, shall we? Um, Baz, we've seen Newcastle look tired and for a bit and then they woke up and, you know, they were great against Man United and great against Arsenal. But, you know, it's such a relentless season and in both these games against Dortmund, they just haven't quite been at it. I wouldn't necessarily agree they were great against Arsenal. They were good enough to win, but I don't fair, think it fair. was a brilliant performance by them. And... I think it's important to mention the number of players they have out through injury. Harvey Barnes, Isaac, Dan Byrne, uh, Elliot Anderson, Jacob Murphy, Sven Botman, Sandro Tonali, who's not injured but suspended, Matt Target. So they're all unavailable. That's you know quite a number of key players in that list. But uh, they were pretty much second best all night last night. I think they weren't on it. They could possibly have rescued something from the game if... Joe Linton had had scored that header, which he he put wide when scoring looked easier from a a great cross by Tino Livramento, who I thought played very well for Newcastle. But they went the goal down, and then when they were chasing the game, which they had to do because they were going to be bottom of the group if they didn't get anything from it, uh, they got just caught on a a counter-attack. I think Kieran Trippier took a terrible free kick and the ball was cleared upfield. And it was then Branton Savitzer in a one-on-one against Livramento, with, uh, and who couldn't really do much about it. Brandt went alone and scored, and that was very much that. Um, so I don't think Newcastle can have any complaints. They, they, weren't quite, they weren't good enough to beat that Dortmund team. And it's a Dortmund team that has been conceding a lot of goals. They got trounced at the weekend at home by Bayern Munich. I think people are saying Newcastle's hopes of getting into the knockout stages are hanging by a thread. I'm not so sure that's the case. There's only um, three points between them and Dortmund who topped the group. So I'd I'd still give them a chance. 
Uh, yeah, Dortmund top on seven, PSG on six, Milan on five, Newcastle on four. I guess they've got to go to Paris next. And I think PSG away is slightly different to PSG at home. Um, it's interesting, Nicky, when we talk about injuries, because quite often, and it was, you know, it was important that Baz picked it up, is we sort of say, well, they had lots of injuries, but still. And this is like a really key part of any season, <laughs> isn't it? Like, like if you lose all your, if you lose so many players, that is a real thing that can happen and can really affect things. And if the, the luck of not having loads of injuries helps a team win tournaments. Yeah, I feel like one of the annual conversations I end up having is like, the Champions League is about timing. Champions League is always about timing every season. And when I say that, often what I'm referring to is you get to that first knockout round in February and teams are often in a very different place to where they were in the group stage. And the group stage is it's just all about getting through. Like, Obviously, first place and second place can make a difference to a draw, but really it's just get through is is the important part of it. And um, completely true what Baz just said, that the injuries and absences are a part of it. Clearly, yes, Sandra Tonali is, is not an injury, but Sandra Tonali was brought in specifically to give them a bit more know-how in games like this. And, and you look back to last season, he was often influential in games like this for, for Milan in, in sort of giving that little bit of, of character and understanding of what it takes to get you over the line. And I, I think it's sort of oversimplifying and yet still true that the game is about goals and Dortmund have, as Baz just alluded to, considered 15 goals in 10 Bundesliga games. Newcastle had easily enough of the ball and enough of the areas of the pitch as well. I mean, I thought they were actually quite effective down the wings, um, Livermento and Joe Linton, and getting some spaces to do something. They just didn't have the final ball, all except for that one to Joe Linton, which he really should score. Yeah. And actually, Jonathan, like massively important for Dortmund, especially after getting absolutely hammered by Bayern in, in De Classica. Yeah, they were they were really, really bad against uh, Bayern and doing the double over of a Newcastle kind of makes you question what is who is the real Dortmund really because I don't know if it's just a thing against Bayern. It seems to be because they seem to sort of treat them um, with minimal respect, uh, Bayern. But they, they bounced back really well and obviously it's a massively important win for them. Um, I thought Julian Brandt was really good. He, he sort of stepped up where Jude Bellingham has sort of... Um, left a bit of a gap it's hard to sort of fill Jude Bellingham's shoes but mm. a, a bit of a gap is perhaps an understatement <laughs> yeah but, but but Brands stepped in and done done really well this season um and took his goal brilliantly uh, Addy Amy sort of looked sharp as well in spells in the match so yeah it's a really important win for Dortmund and it makes the group really interesting I and mean, it's, it's, it's an exciting group and I think uh for Newcastle I think next they're playing PSG away so that you know, that's a tough game, and they're probably going to have to get something from that to to realistically have a chance of going through. I think mm. to, to quote a former Newcastle manager, they have to go to Paris and get something. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, would you love it if they did? Quite hard, PSG Newcastle Bazwares. Would you love that? Uh, no, I wouldn't love it. <laughs> You're sort of indifferent. You go to the end of that, and I'm indifferent. <laughs> it changes the Keegan quote. They have to go to Paris and get something, and I am indifferent <laughs> to the outcome of that game. Uh, uh, on that uh, subject, there were protests before the game um, from Dortmund fans uh, aimed at the Newcastle's owners. Uh, gold bars, uh, producer Silas put in brackets, not real gold. Thanks for thanks for clarifying that, being thrown onto the pitch. From my the my understanding, Max, is it wasn't a protest against Newcastle's oh, really? owners. Uh, it was a protest against um, UEFA's plans to... I, I initially thought they were ripping the piss out of Newcastle, 
throwing fake money and fake gold bars, but it was actually a protest against UEFA's uh, plans to uh, increase the size and format of the competition. And they held up a banner uh, depicting Gianni Infantino, Nasser Al-Khalifi, the owner or chairman of PSG, and Andrea Agnelli, chairman of Juventus. Uh, So it wasn't actually anything to do with Newcastle, as far as I am aware. I thought that TIFO was of the Ruben brothers. Uh, oh, <laughs> no. It was in strange. Al Khalifi and Agnelli. The guy on the right has a hat with Fiat, so that's Agnelli. Yeah, in, in Max's defence, I remember looking at that TIFO during the game going, is that Agnelli? Because it sort of looks like him, but it's maybe not the best, not the best image I've ever seen of him. Um, but yes, the, the hat is a giveaway. There was an amazing... The symmetry between the two games in this group because yes you had Dortmund's fans throwing their gold bars around and then Milan's supporters were throwing fake dollar bills at Donnarumma because of course he is Dollarumma to their fans because he left them to take the money at uh, PSG. Yeah well look, Newcastle do have work to do uh, and as you mentioned uh, the, the Milan fans didn't they didn't welcome Donnarumma back did they Nicky um, and uh, but they won and actually it was a brilliant, so the first half was brilliant, I thought, in this game. It sort of petered out a little bit in the second half. Um, but, I mean, did you see where this result coming? Because I certainly didn't, given both sides' form. No, I mean, Milan came off an absolutely dreadful defeat at the weekend to Udinese, who had been themselves having a dreadful season up to that point. I think it was literally their first win of the season, Udinese. So Milan did not come into this game hot. Um, obviously, in the Champions League, they hadn't scored a goal yet. I do think there's been this sort of the narrative of of Milan's Champions League to date is slightly informed by, in the same way as the Newcastle game, I guess, informed by just have they been able to stick the ball in the net? Because my personal opinion is that they were the better team against Newcastle in the first game and they were the better team against Dortmund in the second game. They just didn't score in either of those two matches. Um, against Paris Saint-Germain in the third game, they were dreadful. And and I think so. the combination of no goals and, and that recency bias of, of the most recent game being awful... Um, maybe sort of overemphasized how how we were framing their performances but they certainly didn't seem to be at their best point of this season either because the last four games were a defeat to uh, Juventus a, de- a defeat to Paris Saint-Germain a draw with Napoli and then a defeat to Udinese so no wins in four games I, I didn't see this performance coming and yet at the same time I would say it's a performance that I would have believed they had in them somewhere because Raphael Leal is this player. He he's capable of doing what he did. And I thought the first goal they scored was he was just exceptional. It was it was not just the finish, because before you even get to that, I thought the reverse pass was brilliantly executed, um, really sort of sold it to, to create the chance in the first place. And then after Giroud's shot is saved and you think, oh, that's such a great chance missed, the commitment to sell out and and get yourself twist around to, to to make that overhead kick he was he was brilliant and and Leao has that absolutely in his game I, I think one of the the big differences and perhaps something that has been missing in some of these uh games that Milan haven't won is the performance of Ruben Loftus-Cheek of course he's, he's been injured mm, so and, good yeah I mean this is of course the, the story of Ruben Loftus-Cheek's career he's he's been injured and that's that's hit him back but transformative in in what his did his runs were doing for them the, the line breaking, the, the sort of way he advanced the team. I thought he was really, really brilliant last night. Um, maybe the listeners are bored with 
would Barry have scored that header? But I was slightly disappointed <laughs> to get no questions on that front, Barry, on the Olivier Giroud, the ageless. I mean, he's 37, so he is aging, mm -hmm. I, I guess. But <laughs> it's just, you know, he just keeps on doing it, Giroud. I mean, all I saw in this game was a goal, but um, um, yeah, he's a brilliant player and a very handsome man. And I, I envy him. I bet he smells lovely as well, but... He keeps delivering. Uh, he's 37. No sign of him really slowing down because he's always been quite slow, I suppose. But um, what a player. Yeah. And I suppose, Jonathan, there's no... Like, when you see him on a team sheet, your eyes don't light up. Like, you're not excited. But, like, he's France's top goal scorer ever. And when you think of the competition for French centre-forwards, he's a total joy. Yeah, I mean, it's strange to think that he left Arsenal kind of five years ago now, four or five years ago. He left when he was well, 32, going 33. And you would have thought that's kind of that's kind of it for his career. But his career has probably markedly improved since leaving Arsenal. He went to Chelsea, won the Europa League, beating Arsenal, obviously, in the final. Uh, and then he's kind of done really well in, you know, continental competitions. And like you said, become France's all-time top scorer. I mean, the cross from Hernandez was fantastic as well, by the way. It was brilliant, brilliant ball into the box kind of asking to be headed in, but Giroud's just got that technique that makes makes it so aesthetic. It's pretty cliched, but he's aged like a fine wine, I guess. There was um, a contrast, I felt like, as well, in sort of the the ability to influence this one between Mbappe and, and Giroud, because Mbappe is clearly the more talented footballer and and no one's ever going to, no one reason was ever going to dispute that, but it it, it feel like um, in this specific game and and I think perhaps it's felt like this a few times this season Mbappe didn't quite stand up in the way that the PSG needed him to. On the notes for Donnarumma it said Mercenario which I think we all understand and the number 71 Barry. Yeah I heard James Horncastle explain this to Jimbo uh, on the, the highlight show on TNT apparently in Naples there's a local lottery and oh, okay. the number 71 is uh, in some way symbolic, and I think it's it's unlucky, or and it symbolises a, a man of ill repute and no value, something along those lines. But it is it's deeply insulting, I think. Yeah, but there's the, the seventy one is l'uomo di merda, which is you know um, it's a bad word, <laughs> right? Yes. Um, anyway, the, the group is perfectly poised. And, uh, you know, for the tape, I've gone back to look at that TiVo. And really, the guy on the right looks much more like one of the Rubens than uh, Agnelli. But my apologies uh, uh, to, you know, Newcastle fans, that, as Barry often says, the three that still listen to us. Uh, it wasn't a protest aimed at you. He, he is where the, that particular Ruben brother is wearing a Fiat hat, Max. He is. Yeah. Something of a giveaway. Yeah, but I mean, it's about it's Agnelli from about fifty years ago, isn't it? <laughs> um, and like, and Fantino looks like he's got a big sort of bouffant hair, like you know, maybe it's the way it's folded, but it looks like he's sort of like Kent Brockman, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, anyway, it's not for me to criticise the tifos of Borussia Dortmund; they make better ones than I would. Anyway, to Group H, uh, Shakhtar beat Barcelona, right? So this group is now open because Porto beat Antwerp. Antwerp are done, four games, four defeats, but Shakhtar have six points now from four games. Barcelona and Porto have nine points each. Um, Shakhtar play Antwerp next and Barcelona play Porto in like a massive game. 
And this result, Adam Crafton tweeting, Shakhtar beat Barcelona with a lineup of nine Ukrainians, a Georgian and an 18-year-old Brazilian. Only four of those Ukrainians started a game for their country during the last international break. Spectacular upset. And that's before you remember they're functioning in a war. They're not even playing at home. They're playing in Hamburg. They can't fly direct from Donetsk to, to Hamburg. They have to get a bus to the border and then fly from there. And actually, Jonathan, the victory was richly deserved as well. Yeah, massively deserved. Uh, to be fair, if it wasn't for Ter Stegen, then uh, it would have been a lot worse for Barcelona, to be honest. He made some fantastic saves. Sikan up front, Danilo Sikan um, scored a, a great goal. Uh, another really good cross, by the way, from um, Gocholeshvili. I believe that's the way of pronouncing it, hopefully. But yeah, brilliant ball into the box. And I don't know if it's like uh, just a recent trend or if it's just this game week, but there seems to be some, seems to be some really good crosses into the box, which I know... One of the UEFA technical reports sort of commented that there's there's, there's like more success in the modern game in kind of cutbacks than crosses, but the, these two, the Giroud header and the and the, the Seacan header, definitely throwbacks to to sort of Duncan Ferguson booth of a header. But um, yeah, Sh- Shakhtar were really good, and like you say, when you're watching the game, you don't really think about all the issues that they're facing and and uh, for their players as well, and it must be a lot to, to take in and deal with. But they they outplayed Barcelona to be honest, and um, Barcelona were kind of. You know, they're a good team, but they've got sort of players like Marcus Alonso in the team and Christiansen and sort of like sort of old Premier League reserve or throwback players mixed with sort of the likes of Lewandowski. So they're, they're quite a strange team. Oriol Romeo obviously started in centre midfield, former Southampton midfielder, um, but next to Ilkay Gundogan and Gavi. So it's, yeah, it's a very sort of hodgepodge side Barcelona, but at times they're really, really good and at times they're not so good. And I think definitely in this match, uh, Shakhtar had the better of them and, uh, and it was a really, really good performance. I guess the, the technical reports you're talking about, you know, cutbacks v crosses, I suspect Manchester City are seriously <laughs> skewing the old <laughs> cutback definitely, uh, yeah. statistics. <laughs> we need them to re-sign Andy Hinchcliffe. Did he play for them for a bit? Andy Hinchcliffe, he was at City for a bit, wasn't he? Obviously, him to Duncan Ferguson is very much an Everton thing. Uh, Robin Cowan was doing the commentary for the World Feed and she messaged me to say, look, they have been brilliant. Their centre-half, Rakitsky, is the portly lad at five-a-side who turns out to be the best player on the pitch. And it obviously, like, he's clearly, like, probably incredibly ripped. He's like he's like a footballing Ellis James, but he, he in comparison to all the other players on the pitch, he does look like a sort of portly man with a beer gut. And it was just a total joy to like to see him. And I don't know if you saw the scenes at the end, Nicky. They were so happy, and it was just so. It's just such a. It's sort of a, a, an absolutely amazing result. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 an astonishing, it's an astonishing result. Um, Shakhtar have been. I mean, Shakhtar have been having to play away from their home for so many years now, and have been. When you look at it in that context, an absolutely astonishing the consistent football side actually in terms of being able to be competitive in Europe so many seasons but of course beating Barcelona is is always special yeah uh, and the other game in this group uh, the oldest player in the group stage of the Champions League scored a goal uh, Pepe 40 years old the oldest ever Champions League scorer 40 and 254 days uh, you are 40 until you're 51. So, uh, no, you are. No, no, really until you're 51. It's <laughs> a good deal. <laughs> you're 40 until you're 41. Uh, it works better if you if you get these lines right, doesn't it? Anyway, it wasn't written down, of course. Uh, so next week, as I said, Barca Porto, huge. And uh, it'll be fascinating to I'd say next week. Uh, so next up uh, in a three weeks time now, Barca Porto, absolutely massive. That'll do for part two. 
one. That'll do for part one. <laughs> your head's gone, Max. It has gone. That chief I mean, falls. Your head is yeah, gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in the tumble dryer. That'll do for part one. Part two will begin at the Etihad. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Martin says, just got a ticket for London. Really looking forward to the show. It was the promise of a ripped Ellis James that really sold it to me. Um, Emerson Gunnar, uh, the journey to a live football weekly uh, begins in a quiet and reassuringly on-time TGV to Paris. So, uh, yeah, also going to two football matches, but they don't really count. Uh, still a few tickets, some tickets available for London on Monday. Go to theguardian.com slash fwtour23. Like, not many left. Uh, in Manchester. So uh, uh, hurry uh, if you want to go to Manchester on Wednesday the 15th um, and the live stream, of course, uh, of which Nikki is a part of from Brighton on the 22nd, uh, theguardian.com slash fwtour23. So in Group G, uh, Man City and Leipzig are through. That group is basically done. Does anybody have anything new to say about Erling Haaland? <laughs> he scored from outside the box, Max. He scored he from outside score the box. From outside that the box. was a new thing. And what a goal! What a it goal! Was such making. a goal! Yeah, fantastic goal. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's it's not particularly new. I, I think that that was sort of a, a surprising statistic for some people. Only his third goal from outside the box, but he's an extraordinary footballer. Mm, I mean, it kind of accelerated. I thought it must have taken a deflection. You watch it again; it's just it's just hit with such power. And Foden's was wonderful feat as well. But I don't really know what to say, Barry, about Manchester City comfortably winning a Champions League football match that couldn't add any insight. Yeah, they comfortably won a Champions League football match against a team no one expected to put up much of a fight. Young boys, understandably, aren't, you know, they're in the same group, but they're they're not in the same league as, as Manchester City in terms of class. One of the interesting, well, m- vaguely interesting talking points from this game was that the the young boy's captain asked Erling Haaland for his shirt as they went off at half time and Haaland gave it to him but sort of was a bit you know you can't be doing that and I would be inclined to agree with him it is a bit fanboyish when you're actually playing the game <laughs> to, but we've seen ask. players swapping at half time before I mean I, I, it's it's one of those things that I feel like we were all rolling our eyes at a decade ago and now suddenly it's being treated like it's brand new I suppose the, the point is, if, if you're the young boys player, you want to be the first to get it, right? Because other young boys players will want Haaland's shirt as well. And so it's like a race. You know, it's Steve Hodge getting Maradona's shirt, isn't it? I mean, obviously, Peter Shilton wasn't rushing to get that one. But, you know, it's, I suppose that's the point. You think, when can I first legitimately ask? I, I sort of don't mind. Uh, it's, it's not a big deal in the cosmic scheme of things, but I think it smacks of a lack of focus on the game if you're sort of more interested in getting a rival's shirt than actually scoring goals but no I, it, it isn't a big deal it's a, you you asked for us to, to come up <laughs> no, with something right. to say that's the best <laughs> I could do I think the thing I, that uh, sort of amuses me when I watch City these days is that I keep forgetting that uh, Kevin De Bruyne is still a City player and he's they're just not missing him at all and he's arguably the mm. best player they have He's he's been out for some time and will be out for some time and it's just business as usual. That that and I you know occasionally I'm reminded. Oh yeah, he he's still that city, but I haven't seen him for a while and they don't seem doesn't seem to matter that he's he's injured and it shows the strength and depth they have, I suppose. 
Um, Leipzig also threw. Xavi Simmons scored another brilliant goal um, after he scored that great one a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they won 2-1 at Red Star Belgrade. Uh, and so currently second in the group. And that group is done. Group E, uh, Atleti 6, Celtic 0. David says, is it time for the two Glasgow sides to join together to compete in Europe? Donkey dare you to ask that. I don't remember Donkey dare. It's not from my childhood. I don't know if anyone else heard. It's Caponosti. Why is Brendan Rodgers so bad at European football? He makes Antonio Conte look like Carlo Ancelotti. Hey, look, they had a red card after 23 minutes, Baz, for one of those. He probably didn't mean it. It probably was a red card. That's uh, Maeda. And then that game was done. Yeah, uh, they were spanked. And I heard, I think it was Jamie O'Hara, and apologies, Jamie, if it wasn't, on TalkSport last night wondering, you know, do Celtic even deserve to be in the Champions League? And of course they do, because they're champions of Scotland and they qualified for the competition by on merit. But it's, it's kind of a never-ending circle. They're... They're so dominant in Scotland that they don't get tested very often. And then they go into the Champions League and they make loads of money, which makes them even more dominant in Scotland and reduces the competition, any any small bit of competition they have. And then they go into the Champions League where the, the gulf between the two competitions is simply too high. Um, Atletico Madrid have much better players than they do. Maeda's red card, yeah, I. you could argue he was a little unlucky, but I think with the foul and Hermosa, there was, you know, it wasn't a violent challenge and it wasn't much force in it, but he did catch him on the shin with his studs up, so fair enough. Um, Atletico scored some lovely goals. Uh, Anton Griezmann Maratta's got second. two. Maratta got two, and they both, each of them got a beauty. And... Can Celtic even qualify for the Europa League at this stage? Seems unlikely. I think they're five points adrift to Feyenoord, who are in third. So, yeah, I, I don't know. What what do you do <laughs> with Celtic? They're they're just not good enough. Can I just? I mean, I suppose I sort of feel like I want to push back on that a little bit because Celtic were very unlucky to lose Lazio at home. I mean, Lazio were not good in that game and 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 just had the the wherewithal to find the goal at the end. Um, and they did draw with Atletico at home. I, I don't think Celtic have stunk this group up. They, they just stunk up the game last night, but I don't think they've really been sort of that bad, have they? They they, they were competitive in the first game against Feyenoord as well until they went down to, to nine men. So I, I, I think it's, this was a, a funny game. It's always sort of interesting when you see a big blowout like this in the group stage because Actually, it doesn't matter that they scored six Atletico. They didn't have to keep the accelerator down because goal difference doesn't come into it unless it's head to head and they're not going to finish level on points with them um, with Celtic. But I, I don't think Celtic have been I don't think they've disgraced themselves in this group stage. They certainly, I would agree, are the weakest team in the group. But there are maybe more egregious examples of that for me in in the tournament. I'm gonna sort of come halfway between you, which is I think you're right. And I first remember last year correctly. They did push Real Madrid at time. You know, they they mm. pushed teams, but at the end of the day, they didn't win a game. And I don't think yeah. they've won in the Champions League since 2017. So it's a sort of recurring thing that sometimes they can compete or for moments in matches they can compete. But ultimately, they just don't have what it takes to, to get over the line. And that, you know, that, that first victory back. Well, it, it was a calamitous inability to score that did for them last season. So they were good in games, but they just could not score for love or money, and they were missing chance so many good chances. So it, 
you know, might could go at some point. Uh, Lazio beat final one nil. Um, it's a great finish from Immobile, isn't it? Like he's got a lot of work to do, and even once he's rounded the keeper, Nick, he's still got to absolutely power it home. Yeah, and and that is a significant moment for him to some extent because actually, there's um, for the first time in as long as I can remember, frankly, his his position as the starting centre forward at Lazio is is under threat. Uh, they signed Teti Castellanos in there the the summer. I think we've talked about him on the show. I remember asking Sid about him on the show. Um, Claudio Latita, the club's president, sort of was putting a lot of pressure on Sadi to, to start Castellanos, to give him some games, having spent the money on him. And Immobile didn't have a great start to the season. Castellanos comes in, scores a goal. You get a lot of sort of enthusiasm around him. So for Immobile to, to score and score well in a really crucial game for them, actually, because, of course, they did lose the away game to Feyenoord. Uh, definitely a, um, a big moment um, for him in the way this season's gone so far. Just on a mobile, I don't know if you've any of you seen this clip of him being on an Italian drag race. Um, it's a really brilliant clip. And it was interesting, I was looking at a lot of the tweets about it, Nikki, and sort of saying it's, you know, Lazio are not necessarily seen as like the most sort of open-minded football club. You can't generalise, I guess. And so for him to go on that show is like, you know, and, and someone tweeting like he's done more for LGBTQ plus rights in 60 seconds than Jordan Henderson's done. You know, we perhaps don't need to bring it back to Jordan Henderson, but it's a, it's a, it's a great clip and it's great. It's great allyship, isn't it? Yeah, no, exactly that. It was great allyship from, uh, from Immobile and at a time when we have a, a government in Italy who seem fairly uh, intent on rolling back rights for LGBT um, people, it was really nice thing to see actually frankly someone who as you say whose fan base have not always been associated with open-mindedness for him to sort of stand up and do that is is a, is a, a positive thing yeah athletic top of the group eight points that's here on seven final on six celtic down and fourth on one point that'll do for part two in part three we will discuss tottenham one chelsea four Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. T says, finally a pod where we won't be talking about refs, VAR and managers' responses to both. Refreshing. Uh, Lachey says, does anyone realise that Spurs actually lost last night, is when he tweeted. From the way it's being reported, do you think they managed to bravely snatch a win? An extraordinary game. Spurs were cruising, almost went two up, then imploded. Lots of VAR, five goals, five disallowed goals, two red cards. Spurs' wild high line with nine men. Two worrying injuries for them. Vicario's heroics. Nicholas Jackson's underwhelming hat-trick. Spurs somehow getting more credit than Chelsea. Ange's very Ange views on VAR afterwards. I, Jonathan, I don't know where to start on this game, <laughs> but it was wildly entertaining. I think we have to start with the football because otherwise it's it just... I don't want to give too much attention to VAR, but I feel I feel like starting with um, Ange's post-match interview, to be honest. I, I thought it was fantastic and a breath of fresh air. But I will start with the, the football. Yeah, it was a it was a crazy game, and um, just summed up by that madcap high line. Um, when Spurs went down to nine men, it was there was like a sort of moment, wasn't there, where you're like, wait a minute, is he is he really going to put all <laughs> every single player basically on the halfway line? And you're like, yeah, he is. That is his tactic. Like it it was suddenly realised this is a tactic and not kind of just a random happening, um, which I found fantastic to be honest. And um, a lot of people were sort of angry saying, why didn't he sit back? I can try and defend it, but if you've got eight outfield players, it's going to be tough. And to be fair, Spurs did really well with with the, with the eight men. They they nearly um, nicked a goal with Son at the end, so it wasn't even. It was kind of like a die on your feet or die on your knees situation. Um, also made more 
hilarious by Chelsea's just inability to break down kind of eight eight players, eight outfield players. Um, eventually, they did it, but somehow they managed to do it. But it was just it was just brilliant to watch. Um, but yeah, for, for me, the highlight of the, ma- the the sort of evening anyway was was Andy Postecoglou's post match interview in the sense of just his comments on referees and, and VAR and just kind of bringing bringing things back. But I suppose we'll talk about that in a minute because the football was we've got to talk yeah. about the football. Um, Ashley says, uh, I'd, I'd like everyone's thoughts on the high line. Is Spurs dug in with, uh, with men behind the ball? I find it hard to believe Chelsea scored three. Danny says, question for the board. How much do you think Ange despises the fact you can only catch an, off, an opponent offside in your own half? How high <laughs> would the Spurs line have been offside counted all over the pitch, the edge of the Chelsea box? You just imagine. I mean, obviously I'm watching this from a Spurs perspective, Barry, but you just had Son put that away. Like it would have just been utterly, like it would have been absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, um, I can't really understand the criticism he's getting for playing that high line because Tottenham, if you include injury time, were down to nine men for more or less 45 minutes and they were still in the game until the 94th minute. And if Son has put that away, it's two all and they they could have snatched an amazing result under the circumstances. So to the listener who, who... suggested Spurs are getting more credit than Chelsea for for this game despite Chelsea winning. I think they deserve more credit than Chelsea because Chelsea made incredibly hard work of putting away a team they should have been able to to swat aside um, with ease given the high line they were playing. But Chelsea really struggled to to break them down and and to get past them. Obviously, they, they got there in the end, but... Spurs were still in the game in the fourth minute of added time and mm. they deserve enormous credit for that. And I don't think Chelsea deserve a huge amount of credit at all for despite the fact that they won. And I I would all sorry, I would also add Romero and Udagi don't deserve any credit because those, both those red cards were really stupid. Yeah, I was about to say that. Like they deserve credit with nine men, Nicky, but they were they were battering Chelsea. And then Romero and Adogi, who both could have got sent off before they got sent off. Yeah, so I, I had a really weird experience with this game because I didn't actually get to see all of it. Because I was, as I, you guys know, I've, I've been in New York on a trip and I was actually just about to fly home that day. And I I caught the beginning of this game, um, the first half of it, in um, amazingly Pele Soccer, which is a shop. In uh, in Times Square, which advertised wow. itself as the greatest the greatest soccer store in the world, and of course I've got to go stick my head in because it's in Times Square and it's calling itself the, the greatest soccer store in the world. And I went in, and actually it is a pretty great soccer store because it's got usual football shop stuff, but then it's got like a gigantic screen with bleachers. And there were just a bunch of teenagers not buying things, just sat watching the game. And I thought that was actually like really neat. You don't have to go to a bar. You can just go and watch the game in, in, in Pele soccer. So a hidden gem for anyone who needs to see a game in, in Times Square. Yeah, so I because of, of flight times, I, I got to watch most of the first half and then I had to, to head off. And I'm sort of seeing these extraordinary images that everyone's sharing on social media of the entire Tottenham team on the halfway line with nine players. And I think I sort of have to to, to moderate my comments because I didn't see see this part of the game. But I think philosophically you can say it makes sense and most teams would take the view that 
if you just want to protect the draw, you camp out. You bring everyone back into your half. And I've, and I've seen teams do it before. And nine men, sometimes you can make yourself incredibly hard to break down just by putting nine men between the opposition and the goal. And and given that it was taking Nico Jackson, despite scoring a hat-trick, several chances to put the ball away, maybe that would have worked. But I suppose you can also make the, the case that what's more important, this one point, or if you're Ange Postacoglu, sticking to your guns and getting your team to prove to itself that they can be competitive even when short-manned, playing the kind of football that he wants them to play, that they've been training together to play, that they will set up their whole identity around. I think you can certainly make a, a cogent argument that it's more valuable to say, okay, we might lose this one, but we will be who we're trying to become. Um, And we forget that Eric Dyer-Volley, which would have been something, wouldn't it? The guy's not played any football. Yes, Jonathan? A lot of the criticism that Spurs got was kind of people saying, well, if you did that against a top team, if you did that against Arsenal, if you did that against Man City, you'd get destroyed sort of 10 nil or something like that. But the point was, <laughs> yeah. we weren't playing Arsenal or, or Man City. Like if, if he played in the, if, if it was a different match, you would have maybe done a different sort of a different tactic, if you know what I mean. Like you adapt to the team you're playing. Like, and I felt like it was almost taking into account Chelsea and how Chelsea kind of struggle for goals in, in you know, in recent times. And, that was almost part of the fun of it. It was like it was like daring Chelsea to sort of like come on then let's see what you've got and and that was what I thought made it so so interesting. The fact that he was almost calling them out and saying, "Well, c- yeah. come and have a go if you think you're hard enough," sort of thing, which which I thought was really you know just responding to the the people who were criticizing um, Spurs that you can't you can't do that in any other game. But well, yeah, obviously you can't. But you, it wasn't any other game. I mean, did Nicholas Jackson? He did the sort of shushing the crowd. And it, did he do a, like a sue when when he scored his hat trick? So I think I'm not sure, mate. But look, uh, there was so much VAR in this game, Barry, and it is it is quite entertaining on TV. But in the stadium, it's bad. And uh, Graham Dunbar from AP, I saw um, Adam Hurry quote tweeted this. That's why I saw it. He said, "Look, reminder that in 2016, the VAR trial phase, FIFA anticipated checks taking six seconds." and would be needed once every four or five games. The road to Premier League hell paved with good intentions. I know VAR gets lots of decisions right, and actually, I don't think he got any decisions wrong in this game. Uh, I think Destiny Doggy should probably have been sent off for his challenge on Raheem Sterling, but that's maybe the only one. And Romero, his little kick out at whoever it was. Yeah, apparently that was, it was petulant, not aggressive, and that's why he didn't get a straight red, which seems a bit odd. Which is fine with me. But I just wonder, like, obviously VAR isn't going away, but I just, it is rubbish, right? It's like so many breaks in this game. Yeah, um, and but the reason it's taking so long is because the officials are terrified of making a mistake. And the reason they're terrified of making a mistake is because of the constant forensic analysis to which Ange Postacoglu referred to in his post-match interview I tweeted something along the lines of, you know, when Postacoglu made those comments, oh, nice to hear from an adult. And um, loads of Arsenal fans got on my back over that because what Postacoglu said was the polar opposite of that tantrum Arteta threw over the weekend, which he has since doubled down on. You know, you'd, you'd forgive him for going off on one in the, the immediate aftermath of a game in which he felt there was a grave injustice visited upon his team but for him to double down on it two days later I was a bit disappointed with that um, now a lot of Arsenal fans argued that 
Postacoglu could have no complaints because all the VAR decisions that went against his team were correct. And they have a point, but he was asked several very leading questions by the interviewer who was more or less inviting him to criticise the referee, and he chose not to. And what was his quote? This constant erosion of referees' authority. This is what they're going to get. They will not have any authority. It is going to be diminished, and we're going to be in the control of someone a few miles away watching a TV screen. And he's bang on with that comment, but it is going to be the fault of, you know, Richard Keyes wrote a furious blog in which he described what happened to Arsenal on Saturday is one of the most outrageous injustices I've seen on a football pitch this season. Uh, Was it an injustice? Maybe. Opinion remains split. Was it an outrageous injustice? Certainly not. So that's not helpful. Us constantly picking over these things is not helpful, although I think we are fairer than a lot of people. The, The sky section every Monday that's devoted to the forensic analysis of refereeing decisions of VAR decisions. It's not helpful, but it makes for good telly, gets eyeballs. So we we have made this rod for our own back and people will complain about it, but this is this is what everyone wanted. You've got it and look look, it's a mess. And a lot of us mm. said it would be a mess and we were shouted down. But here we are. Anne said, Premier League managers should just manage their football clubs. I've never and I never will talk to a referee about the rules of the game. I was taught that you grow up and you respect the officials. You know what managers do? I tell you what managers do. We, me included, trying to find ways to bend the rules and get around them. We're not the right people. Sorry, one other thing. It was also pointed out to me by a lot of Arsenal fans that St. Ange actually got booked during this game. But I, th- I believe he was booked for wandering out of his technical area, not for dissent. Managers are entitled to complain against really egregious decisions. That's fine. I have no problem with that. But the type of childish tantrum Arteta threw, that is beyond the pale. Clubs issuing statements, that is beyond the pale. You know, by all means, if if you get a really bad decision that goes against you and it's wrong, it's definitely wrong and it was a grave error, yeah, have a moan. But... That, that decision that went against our or those decisions that went against Arsenal weren't particularly egregious. They were 50-50 calls. Was it a push in the back? Maybe. Nikki? Uh, I, I mean, I, I disagree with Baz only about one thing, which is I think it was clear as day it was a push in the back. I think that one is, to me, not a 50-50, but I agree with Baz's sentiment that um, it, broadly, I, I, I think there's nothing wrong in my mind. Obviously, in an ideal world, we would not make life harder for referees because referees jobs are incredibly hard but I think there's nothing wrong in the sense that I think it's perfectly human to come out of a game incredibly wound up and sort of express that frustration in the heat of the moment and I also agree completely that the stuff that's come since then with the statements and doubling down is 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 where it goes sort of into a different place and it's it's Mm. it's it's going too far Uh, yes in an ideal world no one ever loses their temper but people will lose their temper at football. They've always lost their temper at football. And I think that sort of taking that out of the game completely, actually, there's 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 a line in there somewhere where it would be a, a completely different experience to how we all experience football, which is a game with emotions in it. Presumably at some point in the future, Spurs will be a victim of a grave injustice and may well have a moan about it. And then obviously you'll have thousands and thousands of Arsenal fans going, ha, ha, look, see. And there's a couple of interesting points, I think. One is um, somebody asked the question about saying, why haven't journalists 
smacked him down with his contradictory statements. This is William about mistakes and fairness. It's not edifying to see this guy swell up like this, just quote himself to himself. The difficulty with that is that actually the journalists who are always at press conferences have a relationship with these managers. And, and so do the post-game, you know, the, the, the post-game uh, reporters. They tread a really fine line and they know that if they are actually, if they piss a manager off, then the manager will say, I don't want them there. And then that is professionally very difficult for them. Um, Arsenal aren't backing down. The FA has written to Arsenal to request their observations, the first step in bringing a disrepute charge. Arsenal are set to present the Premier League with a list of refereeing decisions that have gone against them in the last 14 months, includes incidents and games against Man United in September 2022, Brentford in 2023, Man City in 2023, uh, October and, and the Newcastle game. Um, I'm really aware that I am a Tottenham fan so that, I, that my opinion is sort of not valid or like lots of people say it's just not valid but I don't know what you think Jonathan I sort of get the sense that Ange maybe he's just leading me a merry dance I just, he does care about the game I think I'm not saying Arteta doesn't but like from what Ange said afterwards I just think he's talking more holistically about football whereas Arteta sort of says I'm here to defend the club and actually you're not necessarily and English is not his first language so that's a key point but a manager isn't necessarily there to defend a club at all times, regardless of what they do. Well, on the language, I mean, he did directly say he's been in this country 20 years, so I don't think it was a language issue for one. Um, two, I think if Arsenal wanted to write a list of refereeing decisions that have gone against them in, in the last two years, join the queue. I think the biggest, uh, I think I think every team could write a list of decisions that have gone against them. Number one is culturally in England, Refereeing decisions are always going to be the number one talking point. Ta- tactics aren't really like the number one talking point in kind of how we consume football. I don't think, you know. Whereas maybe I don't know. For example, Italian football, Nicky may may have an observation in that. It seems to me like in in other countries maybe that there's more analysis of other issues of the game. I know refereeing does get talked about everywhere. I'm not saying it doesn't, but my point is, it, and I remember saying this when VAR was introduced. If every single decision was correct there'd almost be nothing to talk about in, in England, if you get what I mean. You wouldn't be like, okay, that was a great game. Let's talk about tactics. It would be, there would, this controversy is part of what drives how we consume football. So I don't really understand um, that side of it. And it's, it's becoming almost performative in the sense people are, it's getting to the point now where, and I, want, I wonder if sort of this new era with Howard Webb is actually counterproductive because, because he's sort of trying to engage with clubs and say, and you know, things like releasing the audio, I actually wonder is that counterproductive to, to the outcome? Because now it's, it's giving clubs the, the feeling that they can now challenge these things. I want to hear the audio. I want to see this. I want to see that. And I think that's, that's leading it even further down the line. Whereas the opposite approach is maybe, which has been the approach before, where it's like the decision's made, that's the end of it. There's no discussion about it. I do wonder if like this new era of trying to sort of uh, engage with the clubs and be friendly and kind of explain yourself every week is actually counterproductive because now, you're seeing these statements coming out, you know, you're seeing the whole issue with Liverpool trying to maybe get the game replayed or whatever went on there. Now with Arsenal, I, I don't really, um, I do wonder where that's going. Obviously, managers are always going to come out and try and deflect blame, aren't they? I mean, it's someone mentioned, I think, to Arteta about um, trying to create a, a culture of like uh, us against them and 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 using referees as that. And that, that's always been part of the game. But, but I, th- I think they do need to sort of clamp down on sort of statements and actively calling out refs. Otherwise, we are going to end up in a situation, which is why I think Ange Postecoglou's comments were, were really worthwhile and, and, and timely. We are going to end up in a situation where games are just refereed by, you know, a TV screen or someone in a, t- you know, in a room somewhere. And, and games will take two hours to complete because the natural outcome of this is going to be more and more ch- decisions will be challenged, if you get what I mean. 
the way it's going, you you ask basically essentially it's Arteta is asking for more um decisions to be scrutinized, which is gonna take more time. So yeah, I don't you're never gonna have perfect refereeing. That that's just part of football. And I think that's part of we enjoy the talking points, we enjoy the controversy and I think there is a danger that you're going to. I mean, even in the Celtic game, just going back to that, Brendan Rodgers came out after the Athletic Madrid game and said he felt that um, he was watching. He was he was part of taking part in a computer game. That was, I think, his direct comment after the match because of how long VAR took to make the decisions. And you know, he said he felt like he was being part of a computer game. And just said the same thing. And I thought the Spurs Chelsea game was brilliant, but we did have five disallowed goals, and we had so many, so much pausing of time to to look at things. I, I totally agree with Pasquale personally, and I think that pe- a lot of people just need to get on with it and accept that re- refereeing decisions will sometimes go against your team. It's as simple as that. I just wanted to come back on Jonathan's thing about Italian football. I think Italian football actually was was way ahead of English football in terms of making referees the story. I mean, the Moviola, the the replay sort of columns and whole TV shows dedicated to it were part of Italian football seen long before VAR ever came into it, but. Also, in terms of reacting to bad refereeing, there's a story that's ongoing in Italy right now. Um, a team Pomigliano in the um, Serie A Femminile, the, the, the women's uh, top division, have currently, and this is an un- unfolding situation, have currently said they're withdrawing from the league. It was after a defeat to Sampdoria. They've cited in this press statement some sort of vague comments about poor organisation from the league and lack of clarity about how things are run but the substance of the statement was basically we're angry about a penalty that was given against us by against Sampdoria and and we feel like so we've got a a team a professional you know so women's football in Italy went professional a year ago and we've already got a team now that's threatening to withdraw from the league altogether because they're unhappy about refereeing decisions so unfortunately I can't say things are better in Italy at all. It's a universal then yeah so but I just I mean just finally my bad on that in that case but just one final thing I wanted to say like Funnily enough, UEFA's having a campaign this week, aren't they? Be a referee, the whole hashtag of like becoming a referee because no there's a thanks. massive shortage of referees at the moment. And you know, ultimately, we can't. There's no football without referees. So I feel like this pressure kind of does need to. There, there does need to be a line drawn somewhere. And I think I think authorities do need to start saying, you know, whether you're right or wrong on this. Like you just have to kind of accept it. Otherwise, we are going to end up in a situation where it is literally the game is refereed by a computer somewhere. And and we have no referees, essentially. That's that's kind of where it's going. I wonder sometimes if it's a shortcoming on my part or that I honestly don't get upset about refereeing decisions that go against my team, whatever the sport. You know, uh, the Thierry Henry handball, famously. I did, you know, it happened. Grant, get over it. Um, but is that a shortcoming on my part? Do I not care enough, or does everyone else does everyone else care too much? What what is going on in these people's well, lives? That a, yeah, a, I mean, a goal yeah, that they feel should have been disallowed being allowed causes them that much anguish. Like, I mean, that is football. But I mean, that is. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, a lot of people could accuse you of perhaps not caring enough about the whole. <laughs> <laughs> sport in general I don't but I don't disagree with you like you win and you lose sometimes I suppose the difficult question is what social media has a huge role in all of this right you know and not only that you know VAR exists it isn't going away so I don't I don't know how you fix it Nikki. I don't know how you change the way that this is managed so that 
we're not all yelling at referees and going through. Because we do. I mean, this pod does it. Like, we can't yeah. say we we go. We yeah. I mean, if there's one part of this week's stories that's made me roll eye a little bit is I do feel like some people have sort of been talking about Michael Arteta like he's the first manager to do it. When I sort of grew up watching Sir Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson, who, you know, famously never complained about referee in his life, did he? And, <laughs> and, and managed to do pretty well at, at, at Manchester United. So I think this sort of idea that it's new is is a bit sort of silly. But I also think that Jonathan's kind of highlighted it well, which is the problem is now, you know, in the past, it rumbled on. Ferguson's a good example because what would happen was he just then wouldn't talk to the press for a while and and, and that would be the standoff. But what happens now is the complaint happens and clubs double down and make these statements and then the authorities felt they have to react and and you end up with the response very often being, well, let's let's improve VAR and I'm still not in the camp that thinks that all VAR in everywhere is terrible, which I know some people are, but I think that the sort of capacity to always think, well, we'll just add another layer to it, we'll make it more complicated, we'll make it more um, involved is is a dangerous one because you are definitely never going to get perfect decisions. Hmm. And it's really, the fans who go to the game, it's not just they don't know what's happening, but also... You know, we've grown up with knowing that a game that starts at three finishes at quarter to five. You get this tray and you do this, you go home. A, an evening kickoff that starts at eight, okay, it's going to finish about quarter to ten, ten to ten. These things are going, you know, I mean, perhaps it's not the, the biggest part of this, but people will miss their trains home. You know, like it, it changes when a game lasts an extra half an hour, right? What was the Tottenham game? It was 11 minutes or something in the first half and another nine. Well, that's... I don't want games to be any longer. I don't care the ball hasn't been in play. This is how long I want a game to... That's enough. I mean, I don't, maybe I don't care enough either, but I don't want any more of this. This is enough, you know? 90 plus four. I take it. Yes, Jonathan. The thing is, I mean, going back to Barry's point about Thierry Henry, that, that's what VAR is supposed to be for, like the obvious glaring, like, you know, really, really bad decisions that influence a really big moment, I think, for me anyway, personally. when And what, is, what I agree with Angie is on the fact that when you, if you're going to constantly challenge referees' authority, you're going to get to a point where they they have no authority and they don't they either don't feel confident to make decisions because they are going to make wrong decisions. So either they're not going to feel the confidence and they're going to need to rely on VAR more, or they're just not going to referee. So yeah, I think I think that is the real real danger there. And and actually, I think sorry sorry, Jordan, I actually think that the referee doesn't penalise Joe Linton on Gabriel because he's not totally sure, so it'll go to VAR. And then it's not clear and obvious. So actually, probably VAR doesn't exist. He probably does give a foul, right? Benefit mm-hmm. of the doubt, you think, oh, okay, it does look a bit like a push, but... Sorry, but just back back to football talk. Spurs are in a bit of a pickle now because yeah, they've lost Mickey van der Ven to what looks like quite a bad hamstring injury. We don't know. I'm not sure. Is there any news about how long Madison will be out? Uh, Romero and Doggy are both missing the game at the weekend against Wolves as well through suspension. So yeah, their squad's a bit thin. So we'll see what Angie's made of now, won't we? Absolutely. I love Eric Dyer, but a high line with Eric Dyer is a more terrifying prospect <laughs> than Van der Ven. It's about half his speed, but yeah, we shall see. Turnbug One says, I just listened to the Guardian Football Weekly from the 6th of November. Um, are you aware that Zlatan is in the new live-action Asterix and Obelix? I presume this is related to the, uh, uh, the, the the Dutchman who chose to be a detective in a TV series rather than be 
Ajax assistant manager. Uh, uh, Zlatan plays some sort of Roman hitman that goes in and beats everyone up. Later on, he gets injured and is subbed off. Totally bizarre, he says. Um, and finally, we've had a message from uh, Rob, Gary Bertel's window cleaner. Just an update to, he says, Rob says, I can confirm that the guy who lives in Long Eaton is correct. Gary Bertel's uh, strolls around Long Eaton very often in his multi-patterned shirts. Last week, he had to walk into town to buy fireworks. What a legend. So there we are. Um, perhaps that's closed the chapter on where Gary Bertels lives. But look, if you have any more intel, do let us know. Football Weekly at theguardian.com. Uh, but that'll do for today. Thank you, Barry. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Max. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Max. Uh, Football Weekly is produced by Silas Gray. Our executive producer is Christian Bennett. This is The Guardian.